0: We had a really like anti social freak at the in the realm of the census screening (laughs) this weekend. Sort of expected, Uh you know, you could only imagine the type of crowd that that movie was going to bring. But yeah, it was just this fucking giant man who had like a huge thing of popcorn the idea of like even ordering popcorn or concessions for a movie like this too is just so funny to me and I had forgotten I would rather you
1: jerk off than eat popcorn
0: (laughs) (laughs) during (laughs) that movie I was thinking the same thing
1: the policeman isn't there to create disorder the policeman is there to preserve disorder gentlemen get the thing straight once and for all we clear
2: the streets along this route deploy our men and create an impassable barrier a gauntlet, if you will. He will I challenge you
1: to a duel. <laughs> the truth? is, guy's starting to get on my nerves.
2: <laughs> you want to crown them? Ground crown your ass. But they are what we thought
1: they were. And we let them on the hook. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all
2: walk out there. It's very, very,
1: very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends. And... And... And enemies. <laughs> Hello, friends. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and I'm here with... Andrew Stasioulis. And... Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double-feature podcast in which one of the hosts selects a theme for the week, and the other two hosts bring films to discuss on that theme. It's episode 36, and it was my topic this week, and I asked my dear friends here to take me on a Caribbean vacation, and bring me movies from the islands, because it's been, uh, pretty cold here in Chicago, and, uh, it's also been very snowy as of recently, and, uh, wanted to, wanted to experience, you know, a different climate, a different vibe, and, uh, That's exactly what we did. So, let's jump right in. Uh, Ryan, why don't you tell us about what you brought first?
0: So I know last week I said that I promised I was going to take you on a beautiful Caribbean vacation and one that was going to include a first class ticket so you would be nice and cozy on your way down there. And while I do think that this film is of the caliber of a first class ticket that I chose, it's certainly not necessarily a film that I would qualify as a vacation, albeit one that does take place in a very beautiful locale, uh, but one that is, I think, socially conscious in a way that you wouldn't typically experience as a uh, tourist down in in French Martinique. And so the film I picked is a film by Ozan Paulsi called Sugarcane Alley from 1983. Ozan Palsy is most famously known for making her judicial apartheid epic Dry White Season with Donald Sutherland and Marlon Brando. And this film, Sugarcane Alley, her debut film, was one that had been sort of percolating in her mind ever since she was a child. She wanted to be a filmmaker. Since she was 10 years old growing up in Martinique. She had set her sights on that. And it was her mother that introduced her to this book, Black Shack Alleys, the semi-autobiographical novel that this film ended up being based on. And when she read the book, she knew it was something that she wanted to adapt into a film later in life. After receiving film education in France and apparently with the encouragement from Francois Truffaut and a few other grants she was able to get this film off the ground and this film then is it's set in the 1930s very much so a time in Martinique's history where the French rule is still extremely harsh and cruel towards the rural population that the film um, is detailing. It tells the story of a young boy named Jose who is growing up on what is essentially a plantation, a sugarcane plantation. He is being raised by his grandmother, Martine, and she is one of the day laborers. And for the first chunk of the film, it sort of details all the things that him and the other children get up to while their parents, or in this case, his grandmother, are out on the fields all day long and they sort of cause a ruckus but as he's growing older he realizes the importance of education in his life and the the need he feels in the face of all of the oppression and these horrible injustices being committed by the french as they cheap them on pay and just treat everyone like animals that he feels the need that he wants to be able to get his grandmother out of this environment and be able to take care of her the way that she has always taken care of him and It's a very rich and beautiful film, full of life. It's full of extremely beautiful period detail, both in terms of the rural community and when the film eventually transitions to Fort de France in Martinique. You get a lot of great moments, such as being in a 1930s cinema, and that kind of stuff always tickles my fancy. And, yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. That's Sugarcane Alley from 1983.
2: Thank you. Andy, what about you? Well... You know, you wanted something hot, you wanted something, I feel, you know, that embodies the spirit of, of the region. So I was drawn to a film that I first became aware of when it had its distribution. And then for one reason or another, I, I didn't see it and it's always been in the back of my mind. Uh, and I've I've come to it many times, but like never actually sat down and watched it. A film from 2002 called Shatas by Ces Silvera. Shatas has a, a, a sort of interesting lineage. Uh, it, it owes much of its genesis to the tradition of hybrid uh, Jamaican dance hall music scene and crime film, you know, crime genre film. So this film was was put together to be a sort of Early 2000s, Harder They Come. The film follows two friends, Biggs and Wayne, who rise through the criminal underworld to eventually become heavy hitters, not in Jamaica, but in Miami. Uh, Though there is a bit of back and forth between their, their home country of Jamaica uh, and Miami, the film is primarily set in, in the States. But let's be honest, uh, Jamaica to Miami is a closer geographical distance than uh, Chicago to L.A., such as in the film Hunter, a film we previously uh, talked about <laughs> on pod. So.
0: And closer than Chicago to Miami itself. <laughs> exactly. So
2: I still feel like, you know, I, I delivered on the, on, the, on the topic, at least on a geographical level. But um, yeah, it is uh, a film about shotas. And the term shota... The, the etymology there is a, a Jamaican criminal or Jamaican gangster who doesn't have any particular affiliation to a larger criminal group. They're sort of the ronin of the underworld. And Wayne and Biggs are two of these shatas. And they they attempt to to make their fortune and, and build their own legacy by focusing on other Gangsters, other criminal groups, and extorting them, robbing them, beating them, and killing them. It is a very violent film, but I think it's also uh, quite an impressive feat for such a small uh, film industry. And I think you can you can definitely see the the at times almost DIY quality of the project, but. It is stacked with legends of the Jamaican music scene, particularly the the dance hall, reggae, and hip-hop scenes of, of Jamaica. So the main character, Biggs, is played by Kaimani Marley who is one of the sons of Bob Marley. And his friend Wayne is played by Spraga Benz, a very famous DJ. There's there's also Wyclef Jean as Richie Fs, who's kind of an interesting character. We can get to him later. The film has a lot of, you know, what you would probably come to expect, uh, blood, shoot shoot 'em ups and an absolutely banging score. I mean, some people who have savaged this film have basically called it a glorified music video. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's uh, a knock on the film, quite frankly. From my perspective, I think that's what makes this film so vibrant and so colorful and so kinetic. So,
1: um, yeah, that's Shata's. Thank you, Andy. Despite these these two films' uh, extremely different approaches and different vibes, you know, obviously being uh, products of the Caribbean, they do have some core things kind of in common, you know, and it struck me how interesting this is as a double feature in the sense that these are about characters from, you know, from poverty, right? And there's, you know, two clear paths out of poverty, right? Education or crime. And we get the two, uh, not to say that there aren't, you know, XYZ other paths, but, I mean, we get the two in these films, right? In Sugarcane Alley, we have Jose, you know, using education as a way to liberate himself and and his grandmother, and then in Shadows, of course, we have the classic, you know, gangster story, right? Get violent, get rich, you know, or die trying. And yeah, that just struck me, right, as just sort of like the baseline of these movies, right? One veers in a totally one direction, one veers in a totally other direction, uh, but you know, the legacy, of course, of colonialism present in both films, right? Mm -hmm. There are racial dynamics that are consistent, you know, uh, even though, yes, different countries, different colonizers, but uh, there are things they share in that regard in terms of the harshness of these characters' lives and where they come from.
0: And the complications that arise in the past of liberation because even here with education it's something that is a completely fraught journey because the actual educational institutions that are set up are not working in the favor of Jose our protagonist at all yeah on a
2: on a human level they're they're both very aspirational stories you know the characters are are trying to claw out of what they perceive to be a very, very, very brutal existence. And yeah, when you point that other idea out, Marsh, you know, uh, uh, specifically about the colonizers and the colonized, uh, both of these films are also exploring a a post-colonial environment to show how liberation is a very, very murky and complex term for the people in these places, on these islands, who who thought once they became, quote, free, the sky was the limit. It was only up from here. And yeah, in, in both films, and Ryan, as you sort of even illustrate, you know, I think we have... Uh, two sets of characters who discover how rigged the system is <laughs> in spite of what they perceive to be, you
1: know, a whole new a whole new game, a whole new set of terms. Now that we've sort of connected them, I was thinking one of the major departures I felt anyway was that Sugarcane Alley felt based on, like, one person's specific existence, you know? And that was, like, brought to life. And Shada's felt like the experience of guys who've watched a lot of movies, yeah. <laughs> you
0: know? <laughs> That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. It is like experience that has been filtered through media and representation and their own idea of like Jamaican culture and gang culture. Th- these films obviously have quite a lot of t- departure points, but I think that that one does sort of get to the heart of what they're, different approaches
1: are. But that's not to say that Shada's doesn't have, you know, real life experience in it, because I think it is like a kind of like nihilistic and ruthless portrait that has in its brutality, like an honesty that it's like, there really aren't a lot of, you know, sort of like redeeming qualities to these guys. They are just going for it from, from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And It's not really sugar coated in any way, and so you go like, well, that's got to be from experience of the the director, guys he knew, you know, people he knows. Uh, You can feel that in there, but obviously filtered through Scarface and uh, Yeah. (laughs) yeah, stuff like that.
2: Well, it's it's. It's interesting that you bring that up because, you know, digging around and trying to find out more, uh, there there isn't obviously like a huge discourse surrounding shatas <laughs> to be found <laughs> on, on the internet or, or you know, academic criticism or anything like that. But one thing that I did discover was a lawsuit associated with the film. And the lawsuit is between the director, Cess Silvera, and a guy by the name of Richie F's. And when I saw the lawsuit, I I immediately was like, wait, wasn't that a character in the movie?
1: Why Clef Jean, baby.
2: Clev Jean plays a character in the film called Richie F's, who's just another gangster Mm -hmm. that they meet in uh, Miami. Uh, And he's not Jamaican. You know, that's part of the thing in the film is like, he's not Jamaican. But Richie F's was apparently, from what I could dig up, you know, he calls himself the co-creator of the film. And he is a guy, from what I could learn, that that was a bit of a gangster back in Jamaica. And so some of that you're 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 picking up on actually comes from this guy helping to sort of be like, oh, I'll tell you some stories. Oh, I saw this happen once, and, you know, this is what it would be like if they were here, you know, that kind of thing. So on a certain level, there is uh, from what we can gather, uh, a real person who who did offer some sort of technical advising <laughs> on the film and then was was uh, gifted with uh, you know a character that shares his name in the film. but apparently, yes, Sess. Uh, and he fell out once the film received its its major distribution deal. The film began as just basically like a bootleg, and uh, was was sort of in the early digital age of like home video sharing and DVD burning and that sort of thing. Like that's kind of how this thing started to spread as a cult film, and then Sony. Uh, Sony Pictures like picked up on that you know this film had a cult following and decided fuck let's 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 get the distribution deal. So it wasn't actually distributed in spite of it being made and released uh, in 2002. It wasn't distributed widely, uh, and I should say professionally in the United States <laughs> until 2006. And this is when the lawsuit between Richie F's and Seth Silvera popped up because according to Richie F's, Seth Silvera. Did not share the love when the money
1: finally arrived. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, the intersection of gangsters and cinema and funding and money laundering, you know, it's always been rich. And, and you, yeah. we all know the biggest gangsters of all are the Hollywood accountants. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So, has
0: this lawsuit been
1: resolved or is there still the
0: chance that, like, we're going to see on the news, like, something with this filmmaker and Richie it's similar to the ending of the film itself? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I that's all I was able to, like, dig okay, up. You know, I don't sure. really know what ended up happening there. I, I certainly didn't come across any, like, obituaries for either of these dudes. So I think they're both still alive and kicking. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> and, and apparently Shadis 2 has been coming soon for about 15, <laughs> 16 years as well. Maybe that's where we'll find the resolution of the story <laughs>
1: here. At one point I wrote down... Uh, these films are about a, a proper education versus a street education, you know? And I want to I wanna focus, I guess, first on, on the earlier films so we can trace the trajectory uh, through, you know, from the 1930s all the way to the turn of the century. See what's going on here. Bobo. <laughs> We're having a good time, Bobo.
0: But I guess, yeah, I mean, Sugar can Alley does start with... Um, a series of almost postcards across the screen during the title sequence and it has like a piano score in that opening sequence to sort of take you back to, you know, 1931. It sounds like it's, it's a music out of a saloon almost, which I thought was amusing, but we get these old photographs and that's then to sort of set us in time and place and we enter into this sugarcane plantation. It starts off strong when we're first introduced to all of the children because the introductory scene itself is like a moment of liberation for all of the children because it's all of the Parents heading out to work. And we get a sense of the kind of things that they get up to when they're hanging around and shooting the shit just sort of on their own. They have like fights with mongooses and snakes that they've like, gone a pit that they do down by yeah. the river, um, which is really extreme. I, I mean I just I, I certainly never had any gambling over animal fights or anything like that. So that was something that felt distinctly foreign to somebody like me. <laughs> you know what it reminded me of? The, the, the thing that
2: popped into my head was the open opening of the Wild, Wild Bunch, bunch. <laughs> where oh, the sure. the children drop the scorpions onto the ant hill and watch them fight it out and then eventually just throw straw or grass on it and burn Light the whole it. Thing yeah. yeah, burn burn all the bugs, you know. So it actually reminded me of that, you know, and and, and also again a stark reminder of In in very impoverished areas, you know, where do people go for their entertainment, you know, because as you said, you know, later in the film, there's this this shocking transition from from, you know, the the, the land that we're at first introduced to. And
1: then, yes, Fort de France and the cinema, you know, Mm -hmm. interestingly. There's a kind of similar opening to Shada's, because Shada's opens in a flashback to 1978. And what are the kids doing for fun? They're playing gangster... Much like a Peckin Paw film, like The Wild Bunch, but they're playing gangster, and I was cracking up at this opening because they're like, He's a he's an undercover cop and they like fake shoot a kid in the head yeah. and they're like, You snitch, you yeah. know? Yeah, and then one of them yells,
2: Informer, and then they shoot <laughs> yeah. that kid.
1: Right. Know? And I was thinking, like, you know, again, both of these films being these kinds of like coming of age stories in, in their own ways, yes, both opening with What are the kids running around doing, you know, in these communities? Mm -hmm.
0: I will say, though, that it does certainly have many universal qualities that I did find extremely relatable. And that was the moment when Jose, when it's, you know, sort of no parents, no rules, he ends up being the one that has to host everybody at his place. (laughs) And all the kids from the neighborhood are in there and they're like, where's the sugar? Like, get us some sugar. You know, like, I know you got it stashed here somewhere. And he's like, really, my grandmother doesn't have any sugar. And, yeah, you know, it's just like that chaos. Of thinking like, oh, I'm liberated. We got, we've got no no parents around. Like, let's have everybody over at the house, and of course, it ends in a disaster where one of the children like breaks uh, a cherished bowl it was the only thing left over from jose's mother that his grandmother held on to and yes of course there's no way he can mend it he does his best with glue but it's just like a lost cause and that's just one of those like images of childhood that is uh (laughs) across borders of just like plenty of times i've had people over and it's just been like an absolute disaster (laughs) they've like my parents have trusted me and they've just like tarnished something of extreme value in the home yeah Hosting hosting can often be a very thankless role. Yes. Uh, wherever you live. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even with all of that light stuff with all of the children, then we do get then, you know, the extreme harshness that's detailed with the adults in this community as they are working out on the fields and the way they're being treated by the French who are no better than slave masters in this film. Slavery has officially ended, but they are all treated like absolute garbage. I mean, you've got sequences of workers on the fields who aren't allowed to take a piss break and they're chastised for it and their pay is like immediately docked just to have to relieve their bladder. And then, you know, some of the adult members of the community like rag that guy later by saying like, ah, you're always pissing like, you know, you, you piss like a racehorse, like what's your deal? And he's, but when he's actually given much less money than everybody else and he can like of already funds that were completely meager, there is like a somber quality to that then amongst all of Them, even though they were ragging him, they're just kind of like, God, this is just like so oppressive and awful. And yeah, you've got that classic scene then, right? Of course, of all of them lining up to get their daily wages, and it's like not even enough to spend in the economy of their plantation. To be, they still have to end up putting everything on tab in order to buy just like a handful of flour and a little bit of some pigtails to take home. You know, there's already in that sequence a very impressive. Uh,
2: physicality on the part of the actors, because in that scene, like I was I was really sort of moved by uh, the, the way that each uh, person in this village was was collecting their wages like they, they did so with anger, you know, they did so with like disgust. And, mm-hmm. and, and each one of them like in turn seem to sort of just like march up there and grudgingly accept those meager wages.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really good characterization too because it like immediately kind of sets up the dynamic that plays off in the background of Jose's story. You've got his grandmother who walks up to the booth and she's, you know, she's clearly not a rabble rouser but she does kind of like paw the money in disgust and has a very calm but extremely frustrated demeanor as she shuffles off and then you've got other members of the town like the man carrying the machete on his back and he kind of is just mocking the french as he saunters up but he's still like extremely harsh when he takes the money to like make a point and you spend so little time with them to the point like they don't have like you know extended scenes by themselves but they're all end up being memorable because of that physicality when they're dealing with the french
1: and 12 toes that character is also very memorable because you know shortly into the movie when the kids are on their own they uh They get real liquored up and uh, (laughs) they they like, yeah, they they get a bottle of rum and some matches from like the store on credit and, and they just start like downing the rum. Uh, And they all get really hammered, and one of the kids sets Twelve Toes' house on fire because (laughs) he's sort of like the angry man of the neighborhood, and so the kids hate him. And they're all just, like, rolling rolling around like old-timey drunks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's extremely convincing. It's, like, not to say that it's nice to see a bunch of children, like, frolicking around drunk, uh, but it is extremely amusing. And just talk about physicality, talk about how committed all of them are. And it's extremely funny and very convincing, and then it's, like, it's sad. But it's also like quite funny when then there's then a procession of all of the junk children being punished for their behavior. As well, they're sure, being, yeah, know.
2: as 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 like the, the townsfolk are trying desperately to put out the blaze that they started, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's it, it is like, yes, an amusing scene, and then the realities like kick in of like. Everything around here is extremely flammable, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, these these shacks are all made of very, very dry wood and they're all kind of surrounded by very dry uh, very dry,
0: tall grass. Yeah. So. And especially like brittle structures too. Yeah, it is remarkable that it didn't spread. Uh, they really, they did actually dodge a bullet there.
2: Yeah, those kids went very hard and very fast. Even <laughs> I was like, I was thinking, man, if as an adult, if I if I slammed Rome... Yeah, if I slammed rum the way that they were, like,
1: I would have probably been in the
2: exact same boat.
1: Of course, it's not all fun and games and rum for Jose, (laughs) uh, because unlike the young protagonists of Shada's who don't seem to have any uh, mentors or father figures around, Jose does. There's an old man who lives in his village, Meduse. And this man in particular, along with his grandmother, is the one that sort of encourages um, critical thinking on his part and and storytelling as well. Because Meduse is sort of like, I think he's like first generation, like his father was a slave from Africa. Mm -hmm. And so he's telling José stories about Africa and stories about his father and helping him form his identity, right? You know, who is, who is he? Who am I in this small island country, you know, in this rural cane field? And so he tells him, you know, these sort of larger than life kind of tales and really helps his development right
0: there's also a great deal of melancholy in
1: the stories
0: that he's telling him because he does explicitly acknowledge the fact that he will not be returning to africa even though when he talks about maintaining that connection to the past maintaining that connection to africa and how jose might eventually return there and jose says well we'll go together meduse like i will return to africa with you like that will be wonderful one day and even meduse says i will only return to africa when i am burned and I am ash. Like, that time has ended for me.
2: Yeah, I, I felt that there was this swirling of generations being established uh, here, this tapestry of of three different generations uh, in front of us. We sort of had, like, the past, present, and future all being uh, laid out for us here. And, and I agree, because I, I found... Medusa's stories to be uh yeah almost melancholic i would also say like elegiac mm-hmm. but also in so much of what he seems to be telling jose there's a sense of you know complacency in his existence as well you know in the past i've been here so long i've seen it all my father was here and and you know this is, this is our lot. And, and he talks about accepting nature and accepting what you can't change and, you know, living peacefully with that, uh, that knowledge. And, you know, the, 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 the parents of, of Jose and the other kids, you know, they are angry. They are in this present moment trying to, to to fight against this injustice and and to speak out of it and and Jose of course representing the future you know the 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 next generation to come and this idea again of of each generation wanting the next generation to to do better to have more to go farther because we have those parallels but we also have the parallel of Jose's lessons you know he's he's getting lessons from his, you know, from from Medu's, but we also then see glimpses of another form of lessons he's receiving, a different form of education, a more, shall we say, hierarchical, institutional form of education.
0: He has to learn then to sort of play that game, too, once he's in school, and there he has to deal with that hierarchy and, like, how the only way that he can make his way through school and reach out to to schools outside of the one in his community is sort of playing the game, following along with sort of the, you know, not necessarily standardized tests, but at least the the educational system that the French have set up for them. He has to sort of conform to that system if he wants any sense of being able to later get scholarships or find himself moving outside of that community. One of the biggest roadblocks that he encounters um, on his educational journey outside of the institution itself is with this woman named Madame Leonce, and this is an arrangement from his grandmother where during lunchtime he'll go over there, she'll feed him, and he'll do some work, but it ends up affecting his studies in some frustrating ways, you know, one of them being the fact that she keeps him well beyond his allotted time and completely takes advantage of his generosity and kindheartedness and makes him quite late to class. And this leads to an, an amusing situation where he does arrive late to class, and the instructor is you know to, to sort of like make a lesson he makes him stand out on the balcony with his arms up and taking advantage of the moment of his instructor returning to his lesson José darts away and then runs back to Madame Leontes and smashes all of the dishes that he had just washed for her um, and then like immediately sprints back and returns to his position of arms extended you know his punishment it's ex- extremely skillful it's a nice again a nice moment of physical comedy as he's able to kind of take advantage of that brief moment and and then he, yeah, he crushes the, the lesson when he gets in there because he's such a smart
1: lad. And he also gets a lesson in racial politics because he befriends a young boy named Leopold who is half-white and later we learn is the son of the factory owner in which you know in whose fields you know everyone is toiling in this movie and he's not (laughs) not a nice man uh obviously and and so that becomes another sort of like you know school of hard knocks lesson that jose is going through here is Understanding these dynamics of of race and of class and of the sort of, you know, the bourgeois existence of Leopold and his family and them being kept apart you know them wanting to be friends and being kept apart
0: yeah i really like the introduction of leopold when it's that first day of school and all of the boys are talking about witches and different sort of myths or supernatural stories that their parents have been telling them and they all describe them of course as fact and they're sort of trying to get everybody riled up thinking about like no i you need to understand like the real danger is like this specific type of demon that is coming after all of us but leopold is having none of it. He sees that as something that in his internal conflicting emotions about his own identity and his mixed race, and his father, who is very much an extremely racist person who doesn't want him mingling with the Black children, he doesn't want them playing with them, he lashes out at them and saying, like, oh, your superstitions are just, like, absolute nonsense. You you know, you you shouldn't be believing in any of this stuff. And it was, like, a great moment that sort of reflected, like, that kind of identity that's being torn from, like, feeling like he wants to be included amongst the group, but then he's having, like, such a tyrannical and horrible father that is denying him the pleasures of childhood even in that sense of being able to connect with the your peers i mentioned this to to both of you like
2: prior to us recording but my my first awareness of this film came about an hour into it when I realized like, oh, I'd encountered this before. <laughs> and and I, I discovered after clawing the cobwebs of my brain aside that, that I had in college as an undergrad taken a class on Caribbean literature and we had read this novel. And all the confusion for me was also in the different titles and my just Inability really to remember a lot of specific details from, what, 15, 16 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, something that I remember our professor uh, in the in the course who was from the Caribbean, I, I can't remember specifically what island she was from, but something that she really stressed to us uh, in in our 10-week journey into Caribbean literature was the the importance of hybrids. Uh, hybrids and and hybridization in a lot of Caribbean literature because so much of the cultural, social, political, linguistic experience of people from these regions is an existence of like of that of a sort of amorphous sense of identity of being between places, being of several different nationalities you know, races, origins. And a lot of that struggle in identity from so many of these places is with this question of what am I? Uh, where am I from? Where are my people from? To whom
1: do I really Belong, and in the case of Jose, right, uh, you know, he's there in you know a department of France, and going, am I African? Am I French? Am I Martinique? All these things, right, caught in you know nations, borders, continents hundreds of years of history
0: and i feel like that that hybrid identity that the what you're describing about you know like the people in the caribbean having different origins and specifically with leopold it has its most heartbreaking moment when half of his own identity is denied by his father on his father's deathbed because there's a sequence in the film where leopold's with all the children as they're riding a horse by the river and his father is driving around and notices this and tries to get leopold out of there and gets out of the car a extremely angry and tries to pull the horse out of the way and the horse strikes back knocking him into the river and then rupturing his spleen but it is when he's on his deathbed that he denies Leopold his name, the, the the father's name. And Leopold overhears this and he's emotionally overwhelmed and he leaves and he's, uh, we, he's missing then for a huge chunk of the film because he he can't take that, he doesn't return to school. And it's a crushing moment for him. And it's a moment that reveals the French colonial outlook. Oh, maybe we'll mingle with you, but you'll never be one of us and you don't actually
1: belong here. And the second half of the film really is kind of a a reflection on death and loss, you know, as in the first half, it's like building up this community, this town, this city, the country, you're getting, you know, all these different, you know, people you meet. And then, yeah, at the halfway point as well, it's not just Leopold's father who dies, but... Meduse also dies and this is a a very beautiful and, and heartbreaking sequence as well where José cannot find Meduse and you know they're really tight Uh, And even though his grandmother is like, just leave him alone, you know? Stop being a pest. He knows something is wrong. And so in a very touching, like, moment of urgency, like the whole, you know, shack alley, you know, light their torches and grab their machetes and go looking for Medus in the fields. And there's very, very stunning cinematography in this sequence of the torches coming over the hill of the fields.
0: Yeah, I mean, it looked really... nice on the copy I watched, but it's just one of those moments that's so stunning and clearly does some really interesting things with light and low light that I was just desperately wishing I was in a theater seeing it on film the idea of seeing that moment specifically just the torches lighting the sugarcane fields and then all of them moving through it because it's primarily darkness and it's these little pockets of light to see that projected I'm sure it's really
1: quite beautiful the digital code will never handle that low light there's no way no but uh no no yeah ultimately Meduse has collapsed and died in the cane fields the field's took his life, you know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was uh, sort of a purposeful act on his part. Yes, because I can't remember
0: specifically what he brought, but he brought his like traditional death stuff with him, uh, which was signifying that it was like an active choice on his part and he was conscious of what was about to happen. So he was returning to the land in, in that fashion.
2: Yeah, it is it's it is a a very beautiful sequence that again echoes for him in death, so much of what he had uh, espoused to Jose in life, you know, the the secrets of creation of life and death and an acceptance, you know, not a, not a, a, a desperate sort of fight against that current, but to, to move with that current, you know, that's Medusa's, like, big parting lesson. And I think the last thing he says to Jose is, forget your name, but never forget that, you know, forget, forget everything else, but never forget this lesson, you know, that everything works out for the best, you know, if you just sort of accept it, you you, you go with the, the flows of, of the world around us. So yeah, you know, Medus just just goes out into the world and and, and returns to the world, you know.
0: And the community of, is conscious of that. And that's why it was so remarkable when it does cut from the discovery of his body. It then takes you into a scene that is just something that you would never typically see in like the standard film of the Western canon, where you think that this quote unquote funeral will be a somber affair, but it's the exact opposite. It's just like this joyful celebration of Medusa's life. You know, José is is clearly, you know, quite distressed and sad upon like sitting in the room with Meduse's body. But when everyone in the community is talking about Meduse, just after finding his body, they are just extolling his virtues and talking about the way that he's affected all of them.
1: Yeah, that song is amazing. And uh, what's that guy's name? Saint uh, Saint Louis? That guy's like verbal. He's like kind of the MC of the little uh little community they have and yeah. uh <laughs> god yeah he's he's killing it. I'll put that sound in right here. <laughs>
0: et puis ces vieux eaux de vieux manikou kagou. Yekui yeah. Et son âme repose en paix aujourd'hui et demain dans les jours, des jours pour toujours dans les temps immémoire m'amène yeah. ma mène en croix. Yekui yeah. Yekui yeah. Oui Croix ah. oui. Mesdames, maintenant vous morts et bien morts, mais ne laissez pas vos cœurs rentrer dans la peine
1: but we also get a, a close brush with death, but not quite as Martine has uh, the first of a, a series of health episodes when she uh, has a stroke. and again to show to show you the resilience of of some of these characters. I was just in awe of her because, you know, Jose comes back to, to to find her, and you know she's had this stroke, and then she's like, "I wouldn't mind a little smoke," yeah, and then just starts hitting the pipe right after, yeah, and, and Jose
2: says to her like. <laughs> Tobacco opens the mind, doesn't it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, yeah, go off, you know?
0: Yeah, this is definitely one of, like, the great grandmother films. You know, it it belongs in the canon of just, like, the lovable, wonderful,
1: resilient grandmothers and the way that they affect our lives. I'm glad you said that, Ryan, because I did actually, like, explicitly think of Shao Shen's A Time to Live, A Time to Die Mm. uh, during this film, which has a, a similar, just like, rock- of a grandmother figure who you know goes goes through a lot uh, sort of in the background you yeah
0: know. and it's always clear watching those types of movies too that you know like this grandma is destined to be dead by the end of the film and of this course. film is constantly flirting with that obviously <laughs> but it is when you have a grandmother that's that resilient and that rock solid in your life you know that the only way this film could reasonably end is with your transition to adulthood being the passing of your grandmother.
2: Well, and I did discover as well, and you, Ryan, could probably speak more to this, that uh, the the actress who, who plays Amantine, the, the grandmother, won Best Actress for this performance at the Venice Film festival? Did you did you come across that? And she I was, did. Yeah, she was seventy six. I think I read. So, you know, clearly the Italians also felt uh, truly one of the great grandmother performances.
0: Yeah, that's what Uzan Palsy says about the film. Was that at the time no one wanted to touch it? It was like a period film about an island in the Caribbean by a black woman that no one had ever heard of. Like, not only was it a woman, it was a black woman directing a feature but she says yes it walked away with 5 awards at Venice you know so she proved everybody wrong with with at least you know that run at that festival but yeah it's 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 an incredibly spirited performance it's you watching that film um she feels like your own grandmother
2: i wish my grandmother was as like badass as as this one my grandma sued me once but
1: that's a that's a story for another day so and and so Eventually, José, of course, excels at school, and this allows him to go to the fancy proper French school in Fort de France, uh, which is the capital in the big city uh, on the island. And that's a great sequence, too, when Martine and José show up to the city and just how you know loud and busy it is, and especially Martine is just like God. I hate this shit yeah. so yeah. much. You
0: know, yeah.
1: how do people live like this?
0: Yeah,
2: silly little cars driving everywhere. You
0: know? What is specifically the re- something I missed? The relationship to Carmen is he like a cousin? He's just a friend. Yeah, he's just, just like a, a pal.
2: Yeah, they yeah. all like take care of each other. Yeah, Carmen right. the boat okay. captain.
1: Right, because now you have another like mentor or brother figure to José that appears early in the film, but then once they're living in the city, he becomes a, a crucial figure, right? Carmen, the boat driver, or boat, he, like, works for a boat company. Yeah, taking people, you know, from
2: from up and down the river to, to Fort de France, you know? Mm-hmm. Sort of like one of those
1: river taxis that you have here in Chicago. And he's quite the hustler because he's also, like, a, a butler, like— like a servant to these rich people and he works at the cinema. So like this guy is hustling and, and giving yes, giving Jose like the city education, right? You know about the countryside, but like now you're in the city. Yeah.
2: And, and, and part of the, the reason he sort of, you know, thrust towards Carmen at this particular moment is that even though he has been accepted to this this very prestigious school, this this tremendous opportunity for for growth and social climbing, Martine and and Jose are horrified to learn once they arrive that there's a cost and a significant cost to his schooling. Uh, He was not granted a full scholarship, nor was he granted board. So in addition to exorbitant tuition fees i think it was like 87 87 francs 87 and a half francs or something like every that every 3 yeah. months every 3 months they also have to come up with a way to 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 put him up to 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 find a place to live in this city that is clearly far more expensive than what they're, they're used to. And so Martine being this, this, yes, this rock of, of resiliency also throws herself into work when she starts to do laundry, uh, whatever she can for the people around Fort de France to try to scrape up the money. And, and Carmen as well, Sort of comes in at this point to relieve some of that burden and provide José with, yeah, a a place to crash or, you know, advice on how to just survive in the brutal city of of Fort-de-France.
0: Yeah, with the help of like him and then a ticket taker at the cinema, they set them up in an abandoned car shack because they had just heard the news that people were moving out. And it eventually leads to one of the most like agonizing and frustrating moments in the entire film when José is in class and the instructor is passing back all of the papers and he's just mocking the students for like their poor syntax, being terrible writers, wasting his time by reading his essays. And he's like, now I have José's paper. And José perks up, you know, he's so studious, he loves school, he's so excited to have his piece be acknowledged by the instructor, and the instructor reads it, he reads the the ending passage of his piece, and it's a story about Meduse, and it's about his life on the plantation and the way Meduse affected his life, and when the teacher finishes reading it, he accuses him of cheating, because he can't possibly imagine that a boy like Jose, could possibly in any situation write the way he does. He even says, like, I don't know where you stole this from, but I know you stole it. And it's just like an agonizingly groundless accusation, and then It's just, like, the child actor is so good in that scene, too, because you see his excitement initially, and then to, like, have all of that taken away from him.
1: Oh, it's so heartbreaking. He's, like, beaming in class, because we also see him writing this story. Like, we, first of all, we see him doing a lot of homework in this film, but we, like, specifically see a scene where Mateen is ironing, and Carmen comes over, and Jose is, like... Furiously writing this tale about meduse for his class, you know? Uh, and we also get, yeah, that indication as well of the inevitability of that feeling that, like, Jose is writing the story we're watching, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in that classic sense. But yeah, it, it really is a heartbreaking and just infuriating moment.
0: But it rules too, because his reaction isn't just to sort of <laughs> submit to that accusation and then, like, get really heartbroken and take that home with him. He, reacts with anger mm-hmm. they're like i did not cheat he, he stands his ground even after the teacher tells him to like stop this nonsense he won't take it and he walks out he's like fuck you he leaves and that's when he we get like a sequence of him he like returns to carmen for some city advice and they they don't necessarily tear it up but carmen does like take him around the mansion of the the home that he caretakes for he puts on the woman who who owns the property like puts on her gown as he's like laying on her bed and i that was a moment i thought even again having seen the film before it still feels like, like oh this is going to end in just like an absolute disaster <laughs> like y- your brain is programmed for that like she's going to come home she's going to see Carmen and Jose like messing around with all of her perfume and their stuff. Um, But that doesn't happen. So that's actually something I really like about that scene in the film. It is like a nice break where they can just like play around in the house of the white
1: elite and mock all of their shit. Yeah, it's like he's doing like lifestyles of the rich and famous. But Jose is very (laughs) preoccupied about the whole false cheating scandal. But I did find that scene very charming and very funny. And yes, like a very poignant way to poke fun uh, at the bourgeois.
2: Yeah, because there's also at least according to Carmen, Mm -hmm. the fact that he's also sleeping with the lady of the house on the side, unbeknownst to her husband. You know? So, So there's that extra little bit of of, of zest and
1: spice. An act of resistance. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so eventually the teacher, uh, you know, sort of realizes that uh, his his accusations were baseless and ultimately José gets full scholarship and board, uh, which is uh, obviously a huge moment for them and it means Matin can quit uh, doing the laundry and the ironing. And that's another sort of, like, you know, moment of, of, you know, big emotions when she says to him, to tell you the truth, I couldn't have gone on. And you're just like, holy shit. Like, yeah, yeah, she really is worked to near death, essentially.
2: Once she has that incredibly moving moment uh, where she just, like, repeats that line, you know... Never do the wash again, you know. Never do the laundry again. Done, you know. And, and 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 yet also has like a weird kind of like haunting look on her face of like, well, now what? For someone who's only ever known back-breaking, soul-crushing labor, right? That that now,
1: now what? After she's had like her second stroke, and, and Jose comes back, and, and she says like. Old people are like machines, and what happens when the machine is no longer working, right? And that's in her case, like, she's like this perpetual motion machine that's just been working her whole life all day every day to get by and now she's just gonna chill out i don't know no no no
2: <laughs> remember what medu said remember the lessons of medu's
0: yeah yeah there's like a couple moments when jose is separated from his grandmother whether he's like taking the boat trip or the extra factors that make them separate and there is like yeah this threat you wonder like oh anytime they're separated like what's gonna happen when they're reunited it like is that finally gonna be the end of grandmother yeah but it is that final time when he's awaiting her return on on the boat and she's not on the boat and carmen's like ah you know don't worry about She probably just missed the boat chill out jose it's fine and he's like no 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 it's like the grandma didn't come back you got to take me back right now yeah
2: this is not
1: her she would never never miss the boat i love the the scene at the boat at night when when jose is waiting for grandmother and she like doesn't show up because the guy gets off the boat he's like the president has been assassinated. The president has been assassinated. <laughs> but it's like the French president and no one gives a shit at all. No one's like reacting. Yeah. No one's uh, buying
2: the, the extra edition yeah.
1: of the paper f- for that. No, yeah. yeah. President Paul Dumaire has been assassinated and just like complete indifference by all these people <laughs> yeah. just getting on and off the boat to the river.
2: Yeah, it is. It's it's this like flourish again of like the the nature of being like a colonized person and just being like, not my fucking president. Paul yeah. you know? yeah.
1: like, yeah. <laughs> what the yeah. fuck? Jose's life all builds up to essentially a dual climax. Which is the climax uh, and ending of the film as he goes home back to Sugarcane Alley to check on his grandmother. He finds her in a sorry state. She's not feeling very good. She's had another episode. And at the same time that this is happening, Leopold who has been missing since his father's death, has been arrested by the local police, allegedly for stealing a ledger at the factory that would, as uh, one character put it, prove that Whitey is cheating us. And so I think the implication there being that Leopold, with his father's denial of the name and inheritance, and and the acknowledgment of him before his death, Leopold has yes, like, you know, a vendetta against the whites now,
2: mm-hmm. right? Yeah, the ruling class, and yeah, it's his hope to spark something, ignite something, but alas, it is not quite uh, in the cards for Leopold, who we see after having not seen him for most of the film now, in chains in chains being dragged through the streets more or less
0: yeah but as he's being dragged away he does have a moment where he makes eye contact with jose and it is one of those radicalized moments of looking at your buddy and being like i'm here still i'm fighting the good fight you know like this isn't it's clearly working out in my favor but i think i've done something right and something i believe in
2: and we get then another incredible sort of improvisatory song yeah that that immediately gets penned for Leopold and what he did you know he's like anointed in that March through the streets and shackles after after what he did he's 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 just elevated now to a folk hero to like folk hero static and that fucking song that they sing man un, I mean Medusa's song was great but this one is a this is a fucking fight song right here. This is a protest song. <laughs> you gotta love it. <laughs> I can't wait to pass
1: it, I can't wait
0: to see the end of the day. I can't wait
1: to see the end of the day. pas can't wait to see the end of
2: the day. ça can't wait to see the end la vie, day. I a
0: And then I guess thinking about a folk hero, it does feel like when Jose returns to find that his grandmother has died, she had just suddenly stopped breathing, even when it seemed upon Jose's return that she got like a little bit of a spark of life back in her at seeing his face. He returns and sees she is dead and Sort of like the passing of a folk hero, someone like her. It's almost religious. We get this image of them washing her feet and washing the dust off of her feet very gently. And it's a shot that lasts for a significant portion of time. It really draws your attention to it. And it does... I wouldn't necessarily say the film is all that spiritual, but that image itself nearly felt holy to me.
1: Absolutely. I want to say, you know, the film... Is is just very nice looking. It has this like orange haze to it. Both kind of because the you know they're sort of like indicating the past, and this is kind of like a memory film in a sense. Or at least it feels like someone is remembering something. You know, for me, the experience of watching this it it uh, it
2: reminded me of another film that we have discussed on this podcast a little bit which was my little loves, you know, and and this again like naturalism, this journey of of growth and maturation and and that's really what we're seeing in this film, you know, is Jose starting his his journey, his education in life. And again invokes this this uh this kind of like warm, raw, natural tone throughout it visually and and through the characters you know people feel alive you know uh, it's funny we've been talking about so much death but you know this <laughs> movie is so filled with with life and with characters who affect one another and reach one another and we we watch Jose take things from all these people they've they've left a mark on him you know that 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 sense again of a sort of we've talked about it before you know of a violent naturalism and certainly not the violence of a film like Shada is a different kind of violence you know the violence of the heart, the violence of of the mind, the violence of the soul and and to me that that violence uh, always burns hot
0: and I also think it kind of relates back to something we talked about. With smoke signals and something very explicitly said by Uzen Palsy about why she made this film and why she wanted to be a filmmaker. And that was the fact that she felt that her, her life had never been represented in a way that she found honest. And this film carries with it that type of energy that you see in something like smoke signals where it's reclaiming a narrative and starting from scratch and introducing an entire community to the world, this like community in Martinique that people wouldn't have necessarily been exposed to before. And so with it, with that warmth and with all of that life and with all of that death, it carries with it this propulsive energy of representing itself for the first time. While
2: Sugarcane Alley, as we discussed, was was very lauded on its release and, and had a whole bunch of awards heaped on it at, at European film festivals. Uh, our, our second film, the film that I brought to the table, uh, I discovered, uh, much to my horror and, and surprise, <laughs> is... Uh, a very reviled film. <laughs> I mean, if, you, if you're if you one of those people that cares about a thing like a tomato meter, I think this thing is sitting around 19% on Rotten Tomatoes. And the only review I read of the film was a review in uh, Slant Magazine, and it was a one-star review. And the, the reviewer really, really, like, savaged the movie and, and, and complained about the editing, the pacing, the performances, the violence, the tone. Uh, and, and he singled out Kaimani Marley for being what he alleges you know, is is like in a state of marijuana intoxication for the entire movie. And then it just seemed like a bunch of a bunch of Jamaican dance hall guys wanting to make their own version of Scarface. And I was like, for all those reasons, I love this fucking movie, you know. But but yeah, we do have a film that that outside of of Jamaica and outside of its cult following doesn't really seem to have the same the same kind of critical
1: uh, appreciation. Well, interestingly, this film is also a first feature uh, by its director. Um, Mm. The difference, of course, being, you know, Palsy studied film and and had the like, you know, the backing of Truffaut. Whereas Silvera, in this case, belongs to me. When I was trying to like find a little background on the film, I found out he was a a record industry guy, right? He's a music industry Mm. guy. And so this film belongs to that rich history of cinema of music industry people making a movie right and that's ultimately what this film is and it doesn't surprise me the timing in in which it was made because this is the era of belly It's also the era of paid in full. Like, that stuff's going on just before this movie was made, so there appears to be a market for that kind of, like, music thing. But, I mean, you know, there's so many movies that that fit this sort of thing, right? Electroglide Glide and Blue being one of them, you know, like a music guy making a movie. Car Wash was conceived by a music biz PR guy, but he hired Michael Schultz to direct in a very intelligent move. And, and from what I could gather, I did find, you know, just like a brief interview with Silvera where he said, yeah, I'd never made a movie. I had no idea what I was doing," he said. "The only person on the set that had experience was the DP. None of the actors, except Paul Campbell, who we'll talk about, had ever acted before. So every performance is like raw. raw. Uh, the the <laughs> mise en scène is, you know, yes, incoherent, you know, a lot of the time. And to me, yeah, like it, it has its charms. It's a two hundred thousand dollar movie. That's really not a ton uh, and we can talk about how that manifests uh, in <laughs> its depiction of of the lavish lifestyle that we don't really get too many glimpses of for budgetary reasons but yeah i mean it had a, a lower budget than sugarcane alley both under a million dollar films though so i mean these films are yeah really made for nothing yeah also uh
2: silvera i i saw uh, an interview with him, which was a part of, uh, somebody had uploaded to YouTube, like a, a horribly cropped featurette from, I think the DVD <laughs> release of this that they recorded on their phone. And so I got to see as much as I could like handle before it started to make me
0: sick. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I got a little bit of silver. Did you talking. hear the guy like huffing and puffing behind the phone as he was filming? No,
2: it wasn't that bad, <laughs> but the audio quality was very poor to, to, yeah. to say the least. Um, uh, Silvera was sort of very pleased in discussing the origin of the film, where he, you know, yes, decided that he wanted to make a film, and he had, of course, I'm sure, talked to a bunch of his friends around the music industry in Jamaica and the 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 character of Richie F's, who we had previously mentioned today. But uh, he he said, you know, I, I sat down and I wrote the script in three days. <laughs>
0: And 15 <laughs> days later, we started shooting.
1: Yes! <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah.
0: Yeah, in a way, the movie is, like, pure id, you know? It does yes. feel like this unfiltered thing that just, like, immediately came out of someone's brain, and they got everyone together and quickly did it.
2: Yeah, and, you know, you had talked about the earnestness of of Sugarcane <laughs> Alley, and, and I find in this, you know, a, a very frenetic... Earnestness. <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, yeah, this is this is the work of free men, you know? I, I, I can't see it as anything other than that. I mean, it is it is a it is a messy, a messy, messy film. But but I think that that speaks to also what the film is is about and what it's exploring, you know, this this very sort of slapdash approach to bettering oneself in life, you know. Sugarcane Alley, we see people putting in the work and we see people struggling and <laughs> and and abiding and and existing in a in a sort of almost, you know, grace, but here it's it's the complete opposite of grace. There's nothing graceful about anyone's attempts at at improving their lot in life. But th- that being said, you know, I, I do like think that there there are some moments of 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 beauty in the film. I, I think the whole opening sequence of the movie, which is sort of a prologue for for what's to come, uh almost
0: like gives us a glimpse into another
2: movie altogether yes
0: it really does because yeah when the film started it's funny i it was clear when you had chosen the film and i was like looking it up and just seeing what it was all about i also came across a lot of this like very intense you know criticism against the film the way people have responded to it and the way people think about it but when the film began i was like everybody's wrong this is great i I, i'm into this like it looks nice like i'm fine with these children's performances i can i can ride with this but yes unfortunately it it abandons that that little it almost feels like a mini short film prologue that that kind of feels like slightly detached from the rest of the film
2: yeah yeah i i mean again i think that it You know, without like leaning into like the obvious jokes that even like that reviewer I mentioned, like uh, could bring up about the fact that probably everybody on the set was just smoking weed constantly. I mean, I, I, I was like every time somebody lit up a joint in this movie, I was like, that's real. Yeah. Like that is not, that's yeah. not phony weed. <laughs> they are, they are, they're getting high in this scene. Uh, <laughs> you know, probably at times uh, the production would be a little bit tighter. I think also there's a big difference between the the production uh, when it's in Jamaica and then when it's in Miami yeah. and that there's probably a lot of, you know, very specific reasons why, you know, uh, in Jamaica they They probably were were treated like royalty wherever they went. You know, these so many of the people that are in this film are, you know, icons of the Jamaican music scene, you know? I mean, to say nothing of a guy like Kamani Marley, I mean he's he's a legacy of of arguably the most famous jamaican musician of all time one of the most famous musicians of all time bob marley so they, they certainly would get more bang for their buck in jamaica than they would in
1: miami they're just some like broke ass production in miami for sure and the the yeah the difference in, in the sections is palpable like the first 40 minutes of the film does is in jamaica and it's pretty colorful and it's a lot of steady cam and it's really fluid and when i was reflecting on the movie afterwards I came to the conclusion with no evidence that they shot the Miami stuff first and then shot the Jamaica stuff later. That's just what it feels like. Mm. The Jamaica stuff, to me, felt more accomplished. They had more gear. They had, like, lots of cam shots. There are, like, none in, you know, Miami, or at least not a ton relative to, like, how they were moving that camera. I mean, they do feel like different films, yeah, uh, in a sense. Yeah, the Miami
0: sequence feels like sludge compared to the Jamaica sequences. They were a royal production in Jamaica, and in Miami they were just like another group of guys making an independent movie for no money at all, not worth anybody's attention. I I also like kind of embrace that in the sense that, you know, we start with it with
2: a with a glimpse into a a more pure kind of existence, you know, of youth and of growth and of life. And and you know they they want to get to Miami, particularly Biggs, wants to get to Miami because there is a bit of back and forth, right? So the film opens with this this prologue in 1978 when we're introduced to uh, a young Biggs and a young Wayne, you know, and these these friends living on the streets of, of of Kingston, and they're as Marsh mentioned earlier playing police and thieves. I think is a better way of putting it than cops and robbers, but. Uh, yeah, you know they're 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 young and and they're innocent and the sequence like comes to an end uh, following their first crime that they commit as as kids. They witness while playing their sort of imitation gangsterism. They witness a, a murder. A murder takes place. You know, and this this criminal that pulls up in this like just absolute jalopy, this broken down car, uh, walks out. He looks very strung out on drugs. I mean, this guy looks horrible, but the kids they see him as, as something big, as something grand. And this guy just like walks into somebody's like house and just shoots him. And then they try to make their getaway, but the fucking broken down car won't start. And then they have this really kind of awkward, clumsy, half-assed escape where they like leave the, the, the dead car behind them and, and, and struggle off. And it's in like that moment, you know, this, this like clumsy, half-cocked, assassination that takes place that that wayne and biggs decide like that's the way that's how we gotta live man we could be just like that and they go and 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 steal a gun and it's really telling when they steal this gun from some drug dealer that they know in the neighborhood you know they go and they find his hidden piece they, they 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 steal away with it they say we're rich now and then that leads to them deciding to to hold up a delivery a delivery driver and they themselves have a very awkward uh yet shockingly violent uh encounter with this delivery driver you know they they stick him up and the guys of course like what the fuck i got a couple of like kids i mean they're like 10 years old and it's it's also this like this horrific moment of this realization i think that That crime is is changing, that the nature of crime is changing, that the youth are getting more and more violent at an early point in their lives, and that, you know,
0: the violence even in that moment seems so so senseless. That in that opening sequence, there's like such a striking and vivid image that I think really speaks to what you were just saying about the shocking quality of youth violence and the violence trending younger. And... there's just something about Biggs's outfit. he's wearing a Winnie the Pooh shirt where it's torn where Winnie the Pooh's belly would be and his shirt's like like essentially a rag below that point but his Biggs's belly itself is like sticking out under Pooh Bear's shirt mm-hmm. um, So you have that outfit with him holding the gun and of all the things that might like fade away from my memory from this film some of the like nondescript sort of you know Scarface posturing um that image is never going to leave my mind like that is something from Shada's that like I will always retain
1: yeah it's striking I mean I really like I like that scene before you know the hijacking scene before they do it this is when we learn that Biggs has been sent back from the United States and that's why he's currently, as a kid, he's in Jamaica because he got in too much trouble in the United States. Big says to Wayne, you know, yeah, I was sent back because I was bad.
0: Wayne, you know what about Do you? Someone.
1: And, like, that cements, you know, just, like, their friendship forever. But, you know, relating it back to Sugarcane Alley, I was thinking, like, you're talking about this, like, hybrid identity because that's very much in play with Biggs, who feels like he belongs in Miami, where the money's at, where, you know, like that's the big leagues for him. He doesn't really have a lot of love for Jamaica, and he's sort of torn there. So when he comes back 20 years later, like, he's in a shitty mood, you know? He spent time in prison in the United States, as it's suggested, uh, and he's getting harassed by the uh, the police and the customs officers, you know, the minute he's back on Jamaican soil. Oh, yeah.
2: I love that guy. That's Inspector Lang, right? Yeah. So So he's, like, dragged in front of inspector lang this this jamaican this jamaican police you know officer who who reads him the riot act on his re-entry to jamaica and i i just loved the little speech that inspector lang gives him and he says
0: you're yeah, one of them who they are foreign i commit all the crime them and come back here to mash up the island with no foreign style a car jacking, extortion I know i type talking about
1: fuckery it. like yeah. it's this great
2: it's this great like just yeah, it's this great summation of like you know what he sees and and ultimately what we are gonna see, yeah, uh, moving forward you know, I did want to say one other thing though about the prologue uh the two boys, the younger versions of Biggs and Wayne, Spraga Benz, who plays Wayne as an adult it it's his son playing him as as a child. And uh, Biggs is played by the director's son. But Spraga Ben's son in this film, who's, who's playing the younger version of him, when he turned 17, he was killed by the police in Jamaica. And that, that spurred Spraga Ben's then in real life to create like a foundation for, for troubled youth. Wow. But as as Marsh pointed out, yeah, we we then get this like this sequence of Kaimani returning and almost from the get go trying to figure out a way just to get back to Miami, and he falls back in with his friend Wayne, and and gets introduced to Wayne's whole crew, including. Uh, my favorite character in the whole movie, Mad Max, played by Paul Campbell, the, the as we all discovered, the, the most famous Jamaican actor of all time, or certainly one of the most popular actors of all time. And uh, Max earns his nickname uh, immediately quite well. This guy is very unhinged, this dude and his crew. And in fact, Biggs is quite shocked at, at the way like Wayne and Mad Max like do business because very early on they, they go to this sort of like extortion ring you know where they're offering protection to people and they go to this car dealership with this guy Mr. Chin a, a Chinese man living in Jamaica and uh, apparently Mr. Chin hasn't been very forthcoming with what he owes and they simply like gun him down right in the middle of this this car dealership. And Big's reaction, I loved it right afterwards. This is how y'all live? <laughs> like, I mean, what <laughs> the fuck? Oh man? yeah. In Miami, we do it a little bit more professionally.
1: Mad Max <laughs> is the Wayne Grow of the crew, you know? And I was thinking these guys were for sure watching a little heat behind the scenes. And and Mad Max is, yeah, he's the he's the wild card. And you know, my favorite moment oh, in God. the film. my single, you know, talk about images, Ryan, that I'm never going to forget. It is, of course, when Paul Campbell appears to be uh, smoking a joint throughout this reggae crime montage, and then it's revealed that he, yes, he's smoking a joint, but it's not in his hand. It's in the hand of a severed arm that he's putting in the dumpster.
0: (laughs) And it's it's really funny during that sequence because every time they cut back to him smoking that J- it is clear that his hand is like bloodied and something is wrong with it but it's like a pink like weird pasty blood like he's got shrimp paste on his hand and it confused me enough to the point where like I truly wasn't even considering the fact that it was not his hand I just assumed he had gotten in some sort of brawl that would have been revealed in that montage Um, so yeah it's a very funny and and shockingly funny moment Yeah, and he also has this like this
2: bit uh, as you know the bodies are piling up and and murders are being committed left and right, where he starts tallying, I think we can assume what he's doing is he's tallying his personal You know, body count, the people he's killed. And, you know, I think the first number we see in that same moment, you know, he writes 33 with the blood from the severed arm on like a cardboard box in in the dumpster. And there's like a moment later in the film as he's like increasingly becoming like more and more deranged and unhinged he he writes uh, another number you know in uh, in the 30s 35 or 36 or something on like a fridge a refrigerator he turns and then goes back to the fridge and gets this like crazy look in his <laughs> eyes and puts a 1 in front of the the 35 or whatever and it's like 135 and you're like did he just lose count or like oh my god like yeah he's he's lost it i mean he's completely lost it <laughs> he's living up to his name and yet <laughs> yeah.
1: You know he gets the job done when he needs to. He is a true soldier. It's true. We also get you know uh, in in one of the scenes where like uh, you know right when when Biggs has come home, uh, Marley is definitely like so f- his his eyelids are shut during oh, like yeah. an entire uh, di- dialogue scene between him and Wayne, <laughs> uh, and it's like it, it's a it's a uh, an interesting scene because like the point of the scene is him reflecting on his time in America and being like, extortion, that's just capitalism, right? He's kind of like trying to bring his American values to their Jamaican crime outfit. But yes, his eyes are like so fucking shut. And
2: again, to me, like <laughs> incredibly honest, you know, I have to assume. You yeah, know? I mean, they are just like
1: partying, you know, <laughs> yeah. like it's not like out of step with like narratively what's going on.
0: It's uh, Basinian even. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly, dude.
2: It's 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 real, <laughs> dude. It's authenticity. <laughs> this is what speaks to like so many of the pleasures for me of a of a movie like this. I, I love movies that that just like are what they are, you know, and you know, as unhinged as Mad Max, you know, that that is is gleefully embracing so much of what they perceive to be in two thousand two as, like, cool.
0: Yeah, it's funny, because there's, like, a shootout that, you know, Marsh, you were talking earlier about the way that this film is filtered through media and the way that it engages with violence and, like, the intricacies of their gang as all through, like, other media, other films, Scarface and a list of others. And it's in this, like, sequence at the dance hall when they take down some guys in the bathroom when they're threatened. Um, The shootout suddenly resembles The Matrix. You've got the same, like, Matrix bullet time sound effects as the his like quick thinking at the urinal as he spins around and fires off they all have got their dark sunglasses on in the dark bathroom it has kind of a a weird tint to the image that feels like it has the same type of post-processing that the film and the matrix
1: had well and that, what's really interesting to me then in a film like this is like i i quite liked how they staged that bathroom shootout and then it's followed by like no exaggeration one of the clumsiest shootouts. I've I've ever seen, which is the sequence on the motorcycles where Wayne's brother is gunned down by another gang or police cops. cops. Oh right, Detective Lang and the cops gun down Wayne's brother and another pair that's on a motorcycle next to them. And this sequence loses like spatial coherence immediately and is like insanely fragmented. I mean, at that moment, I was like, "Ooh, okay, this is really rough." but like the subsequent action scenes are better than this one this is like the real stinker to me it was just like it was totally nonsense and there's repeated shots of this woman's thong
0: i think there were two women that got shot but they felt the need to show the same thong because it seemed like they were missing another image of that woman being shot off of the motorcycle Mm. so it looks like a woman is shot off the motorcycle and then she's back on again because we see her thong again and then she's Sh- sh- shot once more and sent flying. Yeah.
2: We should also point out though that the thong woman does whip out
1: a desert eagle and <laughs> gun
0: down a couple <laughs> cops
1: herself. So. Yes.
2: They're not just simply helpless uh, oh, victims no. in this moment. They oh, were no.
1: firing. I just wasn't sure w- at yeah. whom, Who was, at yeah. whom uh, yeah. it was direct.
2: And it, it climaxes of course with Mad Max popping a badass wheelie on his motorcycle and just, yeah, he stunting just takes off, off. off away from the cops. And
1: he gets away. But unfortunately for our boys that ends their reign of terror in jamaica and they'd reached quite the heights you know they were they were running the town they were running the county they had politicians in their pocket but inspector lang and the police are coming at them too hard and so much so that they have to have a meeting With their overseer, the MP, the local white politician. Patrick Anderson. (laughs) Mr. Anderson. Yeah, Mr. Anderson.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, dude, they totally got fucking blazed
1: and saw The Matrix and and just like... (laughs)
2: just sprinkled bits of that wherever they could. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. And so they have to confront the politician who is no longer willing to, you know, play ball with the gangsters. There's too much heat. There's too much PR. As he says, there's an election coming up. He's trying to just smooth things over and that's when he offers them
2: a ticket out of Jamaica. I can get you with my political connections visas. You can go to America and come. Cause trouble over there, but enough over here, right? This movie doesn't waste a lot of time in implicating like politicians and police as just inherently corrupt criminals themselves, you know, playing all sides as well, taking money, executing people, ordering assassinations and and all of that.
1: But I mean, I think going back to what you said earlier, Andy, about like this, the production being this like very ad hoc thing, as is the lives of these characters, because they get back to Miami and talk about wasting no time. Within two scenes, they are, you know, Pointing guns at the head of the quote-unquote most powerful guy, you know, in the Miami underworld, Teddy Bruckshot, you know, some guy that, you know, Biggs knew back in the day, but now is sort of running things. In my mind, they like, you know, landed on a plane or a boat. And within 15 minutes, they're in this like pink strip mall, ready to <laughs> shake down the most powerful guy in the city, like guns blazing. Yeah. And they embarrass this guy in front of his whole crew top shot is back in effect baby
2: oh yeah yeah they they take his ring even
0: like yeah <laughs> i mean it is it is a bold move yep it's funny there's moments in the film where obviously i mean making the connection with belly it, it sort of tries to emulate some of that aesthetic uh, especially in that like nightclub sequence mm-hmm. the sheen suddenly kind of looks like belly but it is really when they arrive to miami and the way the film looks from that point on it it, it is the most like 2002 looking miami and like a place i'd never ever want to visit (laughs) such a like a joyless and like grim look at the city you know at times i thought it just like looked awful but also it kind of enhanced certain qualities of their miami odyssey in that section of the film it is like it is so dour and so oppressive the way that the film looks as they move through all of these sequences of them like sticking up the top guys in the in the drug community and making their way through town and collecting all of this money it really does feel like a joyless exercise Mm -hmm. and one that maybe does kind of reflect the grim realities of what you have to go through in that sense and i think that there might be some honesty there just in terms of
1: how it feels to look at this film during this this half of it more than once i thought to myself you know the 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 closest like color and location uh comparison i can make is to like Michael Mann's Miami Vice 2006 which is a very gray version of Miami and like this film you know certainly doesn't like look cool like in the way that a Michael Mann movie looks cool but it's like a it's a gray depressing 21st century Miami it is not Stucco and pastels and parties on the beaches. It is gas stations and apartment buildings and sparse walls and overcast skies. It's overcast skies. It's raining in several scenes, like
0: Yeah, it's really shocking when you do suddenly see the sun every now and then. There's like one or two shots from the backseat of a car and the sun is just like burning through the windshield, or there's like maybe one or two sunset shots, and you suddenly remember how you imagine Miami and the way you imagine Miami in cinema.
1: And it's like defamiliarized in 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 a way. I mean, I'm just like watching yeah. this going like, I don't recognize anything about this place. This is just like, to me, I've never seen this place. Yeah. Like, these locations, you know? And like, yeah. whether or not, yeah. yeah, it's authentic Miami or whatever. Like, obviously, they were just shooting wherever they could. Wherever they could borrow, steal, pay for a location, Get right? Get cheap permits. I mean, I think you watch A film like this and and you clock it in your mind you go like all right what did they spend their two hundred thousand dollars on well like you know you you pay the actors you rent a bunch of cars the film stock they probably like use
2: some of that money too on like a couple of the party scenes you know where they probably (laughs) probably paid for a lot of the the party favors as well i would imagine in these scenes where it seems like people are genuinely drinking and uh obviously smoking fucking real weed. So, you know, I, I like that you bring that up because it is, in a certain respect, then, Marsh, this kind of Deleuzian deterritorialization of of the cinematic memory we have of Miami from other movies. Like, this movie's own and these characters' own vision of of life here and and i don't i do think it also speaks to this like this rotten romanticism that we see come like crumbling down you know the even from biggs being like man i had two million i had millions of dollars in miami and i was the king and we'll go back there and you'll see we'll, we'll run that town and we will and yet the realities of it are of course like incredibly depressing and bleak and ultimately empty.
0: Yeah, and it's it's that quality that makes me think of my favorite scene in Shadas. this way that certain elements of Florida and Miami are defamiliarized. And I think back on the scenes in—this uh, and is like in Fort Lauderdale, but in um, Happy New Year, the Peter Falk film, as he's doing lots of jewelry heists and the way we see a glitzy 1980s Florida jewelry store— the jewelry scene, so underlit and gray, and they walk into this jewelry store, and they just start pointing at the most expensive-looking watches they could find, the presidential watch, studded in diamonds, and he puts it on, they pick out another one for Wayne, and they're standing, there looking at these watches, and they say, all right, we'll take them, we'll take two, and she says, well, don't you want to know how much they cost, and they say, if I got to ask a price, that means I can't afford it. I'm uh, not program. that
1: care. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean any harm at all. You're offended by that.
0: Not as simple as that.
1: I said I'm very sorry. Yeah, but still, still offended. Yeah, you're gonna need to give me, like, your number, your address, social security, <laughs> fantasize size, everything. Else have, <laughs> and then probably reconsider.
0: Let me handle the business first, okay? Alright he's putting all this money on the table and she's like well let me go get your receipt like do you want me to get a gift bag for it and they're like no no we're just gonna wear it out of here and it's all just ugly it almost feels really dirty the room i can imagine it being like a nasty carpet even though i'm sure it was you know tiled floor but then it just suddenly escalates (laughs) so rapidly where he i think it's wayne just like Goes to the back room with her and they just immediately start fucking grim and unglamorous and just like not even a little bit sexy. Yeah, again, dude, I think it's because it's like... So much of the driving force in like the
2: creative decision making uh, in the, the the script that was written in three days, you know, or whatever, it was like, yeah. what would be cool? What do cool guys do? You yeah. know, what do cool they gangster have sex guys with the woman do? At the jewelry
1: store, yeah, they impress yeah.
2: her with their with their money, and then
1: yeah, she suddenly wants to fuck them, and then. Now they're dating suddenly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is like extreme wish fulfillment. He is he is flirting with her, but like it is an insane escalation. Uh, and then you know, to to the the cherry on top is that they match cut from uh, the woman's ass to another ass at a party <laughs> scene in a, another sort of defamiliarized space. And you guys can maybe help me out here. They uh, there's like this party. Yeah, that's like it's like in a parking lot or it's, like, it's, like is outside. it like an airport hangar? Yeah. because like they show up in a plane. But then I was thinking like they flew from somewhere in Miami to somewhere in Miami because like where is this party taking place? Uh, in their minds. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, again, like I think like probably the the. I mean, really, I honestly think that part of, like, the thinking there, because, again, criticism of this is, like, just a glorified music video, and it's like, what do you fucking cool guys do? They, they have a Get shot of them a plane. getting off a private jet. That means money. That means power. And it's like... Yeah, what's the geography here? They they took a 15 minute flight, you know? Like, they got that much money to burn. I mean, they just spent $60,000 on watches, I guess, right?
1: The people at the party is just everyone they know, you yeah, know? Drove like,
2: there. <laughs> yeah, they
1: all drove there. Uh, and this, you know, this party sequence is huge, right? Because. You have the classic moment where, you know, all these guys are partying and, you know, Teddy Bruckshot and his, his guys are there, even though he's sort of been, like, smacked down by, you know, Biggs and Wayne and their crew. And so they're sort of, like, sizing each other up. But it's in that scene when Gus, one of their, you know, friends, gives him a tip on, on you know, someone to rob. A bit later at the party, he is shot down brutally by, of all people, DJ Khaled, who is huge. Yeah, he's just always kind of lurking in the background. And that was
2: another like thing where I was like looking at this guy and I was like, who the fuck is this guy? He looks so familiar to me. <laughs> And then it's like when I'm like going through and looking at the cast list, it's just like way down near the bottom. It's like DJ Khaled. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> so yeah, it's like suddenly Wycliffe Jean, and DJ Khaled show up, and they're, they're they make this sort of triangle here of of the power struggle that's taking place.
1: In Miami. Yeah, so that, you know, obviously the airport hangar or parking lot party doesn't end well.
2: Well, that's the thing. Like, so many of the scenes in this movie are really just that. Like, let's get everybody into a location, and then how do we get out of the scene? some dick
1: measuring, some insults, and then some people start firing. (laughs) Yeah. Shot, you know. (laughs) Get out to the next scene where that's going to happen again.
2: I really, as the film went on, like, really came to enjoy... Louis Rankin as as Teddy Bruckshot oh, yeah. because as as the body count rises and as they just start like committing all this like carnage across Miami I really did start to see Teddy Bruckshot as like this poor put-upon guy, yeah. you know? Like, he's like
1: the Avon Barksdale and, like, the, you know, Biggs and Wayne are, are Marlowe Stanfield. They're, like, the nihilists. Yeah. They're, like, the new brutal generation. Right, you know? the Shadas, the guys without a crew, they're the most dangerous of all. I do love to, you know, speaking of Teddy, because he really is, he's the most colorful character in the film. Because our leads are kind of like... <laughs> They're hard to get a read on, you know. They're not really fleshed out. They're like very high. They're yeah, they're very blazed. But you know, Teddy is is very lively, and he does bring uh, a lot of life to that performance. And I love when they reveal that he lives in like uh, this really tacky gothic castle, this total like simulation Florida kind of thing where you're like. Okay, now there's like palm trees and a a gothic castle that this guy lives in. Yeah, and the backyard is entirely
2: made up of a series of jacuzzis.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There was seriously like...
2: It's like like, a resort. Yeah, you're talking about like de-territorialization. I just was like... It looked to me like there were six different hot tubs, and there were like different collections of people, like moving from one hot tub to the other for different like conferences that were taking place about what to do about these shadas,
1: you know. I just I just looked at my notes, and it just says "hot tubbing with Teddy." <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, dude.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <There's>, there.
2: <laughs> yeah, he's just like lamenting the downfall of his like kingdom, dude. Yeah, poor fucking guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't really have to detail the intricacies of other, or lack of intricacies of how the plot (laughs) develops because it's, you know, it's gang warfare from here on out. It's like, you know, a series of of action sequences between our crew and Teddy's crew, and Wyclef Jean is in the mix um, as there's, yeah, this sort of like complicated attempt at robbing Teddy that backfires and then ends with uh, an assault on Biggs's mansion as Teddy sends all of his crew over to finally snuff them out. He's had enough.
0: Just before that moment when we're sort of getting a sense of their success and this wish fulfillment and, like, the life at the mansion, I did love that there was a sequence... Mm -hmm of Kaimani Marley fucking in the shower yes. to the sound of his own song. Yes. That it was like an original Kaimani Marley song playing while he was fucking in the shower. Um, that was a huge flex. And that is a big flex and it is a long
1: um, yes. scene. It is, a, it, is a, it is an extremely gratuitous sex scene.
0: Showing off his muscles as he's able to like lift her in the air and like keep her up even though there is all this water everywhere. And we get a lot of freeze frames to highlight that fact as
1: well yeah it
2: was very in the color of night territory for a moment yes yeah yes
1: you know speaking of those little like freeze frames ryan this is another thought that occurred to me watching this movie that makes it kind of a, a fascinating historical document which is this is you know the kind of movie that could only have been made with nonlinear digital editing. The amount of little dissolves and freeze frames and black and white switches and effects. I mean, like, they're doing, yeah, they're doing like, Oliver Stone Nixon shit in this movie, like I, for no reason. As so many people, yeah. when they got that software in the nineties and early two thousands, it's like hey, dissolve at the you know the click of a button. You know, it's not a thoughtful <laughs> chemical process that has to be planned out on celluloid. You know, with like a full lab of technicians. But no, we can just like fucking. Click and fade, click dissolve.
2: Yeah, it's really, it's really like uh, when you point all that out, you know, it, it was this era of you know Eisenstein, but
0: without a Marxist dialectic. You know? <laughs> yeah, was, the birth
1: of yeah the, Tony Scott's impressionism. You know,
0: Molly's eyes were just glazed over, looking at the screen, saying, "Tell it to stop flashing. <laughs> I can't take it anymore." Yeah. it's an
2: assault. I mean, this movie is yeah. is an assault on the eyes and ears. You know, I mean. <laughs> and then yeah, it just ends. Like a fucking bloodbath. Yes. It becomes suddenly like a John Woo <laughs> sequence.
1: Yes. Kimani Marley does wield dual pistols in his living room, defending his home from the uh, assaulting invaders of Teddy's crew. He,
2: he like, does a somersault over the same couch, like, four times. In, <laughs> like, he does both directions. <laughs> I mean, he just keeps flipping over that couch. They were getting the most out of that rented condo that
0: they had for the weekend. You know, they they clearly didn't have a lot of other rooms to pull this thing off in. but no. It reminded me of the types of action scenes I would shoot like in my high school movies or even middle school movies. The way we used space and the way we were also constantly jumping over mattresses and and sofas back and forth, back and forth because we, there was only a limited amount of stuff we could work with and our imagination only ran so far with the images.
2: <laughs> you know, it, it does. It ends, I'm sure you can imagine, bloody for everybody and, and Biggs loses everybody. He sees Seems to care about and love in this in this climactic John Woo esque shootout in the condo, and uh, and it seems to be it. You know, he's he's now left alone in this world. Even even Mad Max. Ate a bullet, and 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 he who seemed unstoppable the whole film, you know, he just he just like throws him in a fucking like hospital, and he's just like I don't even know this guy or whatever, you know, <laughs> yeah. which of course is like part of the thing, you know, you gotta yeah yeah you gotta get out of there. It isn't totally cold, you know, it is a very calculated move on on their right. part, but. uh... Biggs has one last card to
1: play before he heads out of town, and that's the green screen driving card. As he, as he goes to Teddy's uh, hot tub headquarters, uh, he's cruising in this obviously like matted green screen shop because like he's in the car and he's like clearly lit by a light that's like just out of frame. And honestly, I wish there were more of these shots and sequences me too. like it was very unreal and and I didn't hate how it looked it looked artificial but it looked like artificial in like a cool way uh, to me
0: it might just be like my analog fetishization but just just the fact that this film, was shot on film uh, and it has like a weird texture to it when these digital things are interfering with it it does look really unique and so when you do have that crazy green screen shot with the camera like locked on the car and it doesn't look like anything in reality is actually moving as if he's just floating through this digital space I wished every single car scene looked like (laughs) that
2: (laughs) it it was like rear projection you know like an old classic Hollywood movie I mean it, mm-hmm. it was this uncanny feeling. But yeah, he does. He travels there and and he uh, he shoots shoots Teddy Bruckshot's girl and then, you know, Teddy Bruckshot says to, him to him again in a moment that like I really did love Teddy Bruckshot and I uh, Teddy Teddy on his like way out when he's like what more do you fucking want from me, you know, when Biggs is pointing a gun at him. He's like why else
0: you so from me? Kill me, girl you everything now, boy. You
2: have all of my money. You have everything. Why so hard from me?
1: Yeah?
2: Huh? Yes, sir. Like, you fucking fucked up my whole life, you know? And I was, I was like, yeah, I really did. I was like, yes, these guys did just come in here and just create chaos and, like, <laughs> kill a whole bunch of people for no fucking reason whatsoever. Like... They're the assholes. Like, Biggs is a fucking
1: asshole, you know? I mean, you know, there is is an interesting self-awareness to that throughout the movie where Biggs is always saying, you know, I just want to eat. And Clef Jean sort of, like, makes fun of him. He's like, dude, you're fucking, like, loaded. (laughs) What does that mean anymore? But, you know, what's really interesting to me is, like, obviously— this is modeled after the American gangster film, you know, very explicitly. You got to remember, the gangster film is product of Hollywood. And that means that when the gangster rises, they have the budget to show you that rise and that <laughs> opulence, right? And and again, I think it's like what makes this film fascinating is because they do rise, But, like, what we're seeing is, yeah, it's not opulent. It's not this beautiful, like, you know, Michael Mann, modernist mansion living. It's, like, weird Florida, early 2000s living. Think about how empty you you feel at the end of, of this film. And then think about how warm you feel at the end of Sugarcane Alley. Even though that film ends with a death, you still are, like, hopeful for Jose and... Here, it's just like, damn, everyone's fucking dead, except, (laughs) you know, Biggs, who hanging out. Well, he takes a cool boat ride, and then he just, like, hangs out by the water, and it ends fairly ambiguously. But it's like, what is next for this guy?
2: I saw somebody, I don't know if it was a reviewer, somebody said, like, the implication being that, like, he gets on that boat, and he's headed to L.A., and I was like... What? He got on a a fucking speedboat and decided to go from Miami to L.A.? (laughs) You would do that? Logistically? (laughs) That's what I'm saying! You'd have to go around the horn! The Panama Canal? (laughs) I guess. He's such a shortcut right there, but... Good God. Fucking idiot. Like, no, man. It's like, it is whatever they wanted it
1: to be in that moment. Criminal reflecting on water is a classic man image. And a timeless one as well, as this film demonstrates. Well, I gotta say, you know, uh, I watched these films back-to-back on a very snowy winter day. And uh, it was nice to to get a taste of uh, the islands as uh, the snow came pouring in in poor old Chicago. I'm glad to hear it warmed you up a little bit. It definitely did. I want to be in Teddy's hot tub, dude. That's where I want to be.
0: Yeah, that sounds nice. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, you say it gives you a nice little taste. Um, what other flavors of Caribbean cinema are you a fan of, Marsh?
1: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the no brainer here, and one that Andy already mentioned, and one that was a clear inspiration for Shadas, which is, of course. The harder they come, and I just have to have to do it because if you're listening to this and you haven't seen it, you gotta see it. Uh, directed by Perry Henzell in 1972, it is the classic Jamaican crime film starring Jimmy Cliff with his music and other reggae legends, and it's this rags to riches to outlaw, you know, notorious outlaw story uh, of Jimmy Cliff as he uh, becomes this criminal in in Jamaica and when I was in undergrad uh, I had this on DVD and would basically put it on like daily because if I wasn't looking at it I was listening to it and I was often looking at it. So it was a film that like really excited me when I was a, a young lad, you know, watching uh, non-American movies, you know, really for the first time. And this is one that made a huge impression and one especially that I think of always to this day that has uh, red blood like a Godard film, like this fake, yeah. this amazing fake blood. Because like people are always getting like stabbed or shot in the face in The Harder They Come. and there's this really sort of like fake blood situation that i find uh, aesthetically pleasing along with uh The good jams on the soundtrack
0: yeah it's definitely a banger i guess you know i want to do something a little bit different this week too and maybe we'll uh, (laughs) just because i it's just because it was so recent that i read it but we could call this little ryan's book corner oh my
1: god this wasn't (laughs) cleared with the producer (laughs) i
0: would love to recommend everyone to read marlon james's novel a brief history of seven killings i just read it It's awesome. It came out a couple of years ago and it's sort of like if As I Lay Dying was 700 pages long and about the lead up to the attempted assassination on Bob Marley and then the way that affected Jamaican history and the people of Jamaica from the late 70s all the way up until the 90s and it jumps around both from Jamaica all the way to Miami and New York and it involves with the Colombians with Griselda Blanco and it's just like a cacophony of voices and it is so awesome it's uh, one of the best like contemporary books i've read in a very long time so check out a brief history of seven killings yes. I think Oprah was a big fan of that book as well, Ryan. Oh, she also likes Faulkner. She, You're in good she, company. The Chicago vibe. I've, like, long wanted the copy of As I Lay Dying that has the Oprah Book Club sticker on it. Because it's just, like, such a funny object to me.
1: Um, one day I'll track down my own copy. Well, it was my topic this week. But next week, it's Andy's topic. What do you have in store for us this time? Well, you
2: know, uh, it's that time of the year. Valentine's Day is right around the corner. And I was thinking about that, um, you know, all that that entails. We are all taken men and and we have our bows, our, our loved ones. Um, but, you know, I, I realized that uh, I'd already picked... A topic specifically like devoted to, I believe it was bad romance, was, was a topic uh, we'd looked at before. So I don't want to go that route. But I also noticed that The Music Box, uh, a movie theater here in Chicago that we all know and love, had just done a, a series on one of my favorite styles of cinema, a style that often combines... Uh, horror and violence with a lot of bad romance and psychosexual overtones, and that would be the Italian style of giallo or jolly films. So, I've kind of been in the mood for it, you know. And I think it's appropriately Valentine's Day. A lot of bad, bad ro- love and bad romance going on in those films. So, bring me one of your your favorite. Jallo films that you like
1: next week. Well, I'm going to bring you my bloodiest Valentine.
2: Please, please <laughs> do. Let's have a let's have a very bloody Valentine next week.
1: As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks everyone. <laughs> La terre, l'eau, le feu, la vie. Il ne faut pas croire que l'eau
0: et le feu sont ennemis. Non, ils sont les forces de la
2: création. Et l'un a besoin de l'autre pour donner la vie. Oui, il donne la vie.
1: Voilà, oui. ouais. eh ben, is oui. my et c'est quoi ça Hein j'appuie Eh bien, c'est limite. Oui, mais... Essaie de la faire repartir. Tout ce que je possède, c'est que personne ne peut le faire. Parce que c'est la seule chose que l'on peut défaire et qu'il ne peut pas refaire. Mon frère. Faut laisser la création régler ses affaires elle memes Et quand ça arrive, il faut savoir accepter ces mouvements de la création. Sans pleurs, sans cris. Puisque de toute façon, c'est une bonne chose.